Welcome to the DIY Recording Equipment Podcast. My name's Peterson Goodwin, and today I have the privilege to be talking to tube guru D.W. Fern. Earlier this year, I had a chance to go out and visit D.W. or Doug Fern at his workshop and home outside Philadelphia. Doug's been designing no-compromise, all-tube recording gear since the early 90s, and since then, his preamps, compressors, and equalizers have attained a legendary status. So Doug and I had a great conversation about his philosophy and uh, why he is so committed to using tubes in all of his gear. I hope you find our conversation to be as enlightening and inspiring as I did. Well, I started out, you know, as a studio owner. And my first studio was officially incorporated in 1969. And what I had in that studio was almost entirely tube gear. Because in the 60s, that was like the transition time. Mm -hmm. There were solid-state consoles around, but for the most part, tubes still were pretty dominant. And I didn't have a console. I built a console using a bunch of RCA tube mic preamps that I got from WPEN, which is where I was working when I was in high school. Okay. It's a radio station in Philadelphia. That was all tubes from mic mm -hmm. to the antenna. There was not a solid-state device in that building. They had racks and racks of these mic preamps, and they replaced some of the consoles. The consoles were replaced with more modern tube consoles, but they had, back in those days, the mic preamps were all rack-mounted. Okay. They weren't part of the console. Oh, interesting. Huh. So they, these things were just sitting in the rack. And one time I asked the chief engineer, I said, you know, what are you going to do with those? you need those? Well, we're just keeping them for spares. I said, well, how many spares do you need? We only have one console left that uses that mic preamp. I said, I can use them if you don't free up some rack space, get them out of here. Mm -hmm. He said, okay. So I took home, I guess, eight mic preamps. And that formed my first passive mixer console with two mic preamps. Going into an Ampex four-channel tube machine, mm -hmm. tape machine. So were those preamps ready to go off the shelf, or did they? Well, they were ancient. Uh -huh. I mean, they were in 1938. Okay, wow. They were really old. Wow. And they were very microphonic. And what they did is they mounted the tube sockets on little rubber grommets to sort of reduce the amount of mm -hmm. microphonics from the environment. And that they were all rotted out and everything. So I replaced all that. Tubes were readily available. That was easy. They had a separate power supply, which weighed about 75 pounds. It ran a rack full of these. And the filter capacitors, you know, back in then there were no electrolytics. They were oil-filled filter caps. And they were fine, but there really wasn't enough filtering. So I added, I modified those. And the preamp sounded great. They really sounded good. And then... A few years later, when business was good and I could afford a real console, I replaced it with a solid-state console. That's when, you know, the revelation occurred because it was like I just spent a fortune on this console. And we put it in, and it sounded awful. Hmm. It just sounded awful. Right. Everything sounded thin and constricted, and it was quiet. It measured quiet, but there was an audible kind of annoying, sharp waveform hiss in the console. And that was just typical of solid state. I mean, it, it was the best that you could do right. at that time. 
But, you know, like so many other people, and I've talked to other studio owners from that era, and they all went through the same experience. It was like, we just bought this thing. It cost, you know, a year's worth of income. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we can't admit that it doesn't sound good. So we just lived with it and got used to it. And and that's what that's what the console manufacturers and everybody else would say was, well, you're just not used to perfection. You oh, have to wow. get you have to wow. get used to perfection. <laughs> uh you've been hearing all this tube artifact stuff and everything that's right. you know, but now now that you're hearing it properly, mm -hmm. the way the sound's supposed to sound, you'll get used to it. Wow. You and know. uh fifty years later we're we're still not quite used to perfection, I don't think. I guess not. Yeah. You know, I mean I mean it's 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 perfectly analogous to the same process with digital. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. You know, it was mm -hmm. the same thing. You know, I got rid of all those two mic preamps because I figured I'd never need them again. It wasn't until years later when a friend of mine, who I had I've been recording since we were in high school together, because I went to a high school that had an FM broadcast station. We actually had some really nice equipment in there. We had Ampex tape machines and a really nice Collins mixer and really good mics and stuff. So I used to record bands and stuff, you know, with three or four mics, and he brought over a tape one day that we had made in, like, 1966. That was all tubes. Mm -hmm. And I listened to that and I said, wow, this stuff really sounds good. And then he said, now listen to this. And he pulled out one of the things we had done at my studio when it was all tube. And I said, that really sounds great. I mean, my recording technique, the room, all those things that improved over the years, but just the intrinsic sound of the instruments just was so nice. I didn't really think about that too much for a while, but it just kept sort of gnawing at me because I was doing, at that point, I I'd sold the studio. I was out of the um, studio business, but I was doing some location recording, mostly classical stuff. And I had, you know, a really nice Neve mixer like sitting right there in back of you, which I've been using for 30 years for the classical recording. Mm -hmm. And it sounded nice. I mean, it's pretty nice sounding, you know, the Neve Mic preamps are pretty nice. Right, yeah. And uh, But I thought, you know, I want to try building a tube preamp. And that was the prototype that became the VT-1. And it's not really a copy of anything. It's sort of um, a composite of a lot of different things that I found over the years worked well in audio circuitry, because I had always built everything myself anyway during all this time. Okay, so it, it wasn't as if a switch turned on in the early 90s and you went from being studio owner to uh, electronics engineer. That was part of your background. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I had been playing around with electronics since I was like eight. Oh, okay. okay the, yeah. you know, the first um, tube-type audio amplifier power amp I built was, I think, when I was... Uh, uh, Probably 10, 9 or 10. Wow. It's like the way kids play around with code these days. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just been part of my life. Mm -hmm. There was no real learning curve there as far as the technology was concerned. It was more of a learning curve figuring out, how do I get this to sound as, the, as good as it can possibly sound? Mm -hmm. Because the old tube mic preamps might have a signal to noise of 65 dB, and that was considered like state of the art. You know, mm -hmm. and um, you just can't get away with that today. No. 
And I mean, the tape machines back then, on a good day, at 65 dB signal to noise. So right. 65 dB in the mic preamp was plenty. Right. Well, I want to get into more about where you were about to go, which is the design of the VT1, mm -hmm. your first mic preamp. But I want to say before that, what I love about the story so far is that here's a recording engineer who's had technology foisted upon them that's been built to market demand mm -hmm. and to certain paper specs and and then found that the ears didn't follow the paper or the or the money and um so now in the, in the next part of the story it sounds like you're building something ears first i guess you could put it yeah i think i think that's right cuz i definitely had a sound in my mind about what i wanted this to sound like right you know and you know, to get the full picture, you have to understand my background because I probably didn't have a typical kind of musical background that most people have. My father was in the Philadelphia Orchestra. When I was growing up, I used to go to rehearsals and concerts too, but I went to a lot of rehearsals, the Philadelphia Orchestra. And I would sit there sometimes on stage with my father when they were rehearsing, but a lot of times I'd just be wandering around. Academy of Music in Philadelphia, which is where the Philadelphia Orchestra was based at that time. Mm -hmm. So my concept of what things sounded like is based on that. It's not based on, you know, the sound of recording, because we didn't really listen to recorded music in my household. Mm. My father was not, he, he didn't like the sound of recordings. Mm. So we didn't. We didn't have record player. We didn't, you know, never turn on the radio to listen to music or anything. Right. Live music was what I was exposed to. So that sort of informed my way of hearing. So when the time came that I wanted to build uh, mic preamp and, and all the other gear, you know, that's the sound that I have in my mind. Mm. That's interesting. You know, probably most people in my generation, my idea of, of music is so much about recorded music. And I, I think that's true. Of, I mean, like you said, you're an, you're an exception. And that's interesting to think about how we now, as as artists and recording engineers, gravitate to certain types of gear or certain types of sound, perhaps because it has a nostalgic connection to, say, the '70s solid state, you know, right. dry studio sound, or the mm -hmm. '80s uh, early digital sound, that kind of thing. What, do you think it's a fair inference then to say that, to you, tubes capture more of real life than solid state? Yeah, I think that's true. To to my ear, they sound right, and the solid state stuff just sounds harsh to huh. me. Okay, you know, harsh and brittle. And you know, I've done lots of recordings in this room where we're where we are right now. That's a hundred percent tubes. The only solid state devices are the analog stages of the converter. Hmm. It's all tubes from one end to the other. Yeah. And you know, to me, I just love the way that sounds. And to me, that's the way it's, music's supposed to sound. As simple as that. <laughs> yeah. Let's get into a little bit of why we think that is. In the early 70s, there was a really interesting article in the Journal of the Audio Engineering Society written by Russ Hamm, um, who was an engineer at A&R in New York at the time. And the title of the article was Tubes versus Transistors. Is there a difference? And this was a debate that was going on in the early 70s because that was a time when everybody was replacing their old tube gear with solid state 
and having that, oh, no, what have we done moment, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, when things just didn't sound right. Mm -hmm. So he tried to approach it scientifically and say, is there some quantifiable things that we can measure that will tell us whether or not there is a difference in the sound between these two things? And I read that article when it first came out, I think in 1973, and and it's on my website. So if anybody wants to read it, it's a really interesting article. Mm And he did a bunch of experiments where he analyzed what happened to the audio when it went through solid-state equipment and when it went through tube equipment. One of the first things he realized was that the actual level coming out of a microphone is significantly higher than the nominal level that we consider as the output level of the mic because the transients in the sound you know, are just not easily measured, but they're significantly higher than the average level. Right. So he put an oscilloscope on a bunch of different mics. Uh, I think he used a U67 and a uh, EV666, which were typical mics. And I think an RCA44, which were the condenser, right. uh, ribbon, and dynamic mics uh, that were popular at the er- in that sure. era. Yeah. And he found that the output levels were incredibly high, well over a volt on peaks. And if you take a, a microphone preamplifier and feed a volt of of audio into it, it's going to distort no matter what the mic preamp is, unless you pad down that input so much that basically you'd need a ton of gain just to make up for it, which would be impractical because solid state or tube would just be way too noisy. Yeah. So we accept that those peaks are going to overload the device. And that's a given. Yeah. Okay. In a, not every situation, but in a majority of situations. Mm-hmm. And it's those transients that give us sort of the reality of the music. And they exist, something like a piano, like a real acoustic piano. The peaks on a piano are just outrageously high. It's a very percussive instrument. We, right. And I know back in the days of recording on tape, we would never record a piano higher than about minus 10 or minus 6, just because those transients would just get mushed on the tape. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you might like that, but it didn't really sound like a piano anymore. Right. If you <laughs> if you clip off the transient, almost every instrument sounds the same. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So after I read this article, I said, I don't know if I believe this. Is it really that high? So I pulled out an oscilloscope and put it on, I think I use a U87 on a piano. And sure enough, there's five-volt peaks coming off of that mic. Here we're talking about the difference between the, the nominal RMS value which so you might say, well, oh, microphones, RMS value is only a few millivolts. Basically, what you're saying is you, you need a lot more headroom than we commonly think. That's right. Okay. That's it exactly. Yeah. And given that that we don't, we can't afford that kind of headroom in most situations, in order to keep the noise level reasonable, mm-hmm. we have to accept that some of those transients are going to go into distortion. And this is where Russ Ham really did the the research and found out that. When he analyzed the distortion products in a tube device versus a solid-state device, he found a significant difference. In tube devices, the predominant um, distortion product and well-designed piece of tube gear are even-order harmonics, which are octaves. Right. They fit in perfectly. Uh-huh. They just fill in, you know, those upper overtones of the sound mm-hmm. perfectly. They're perfectly in tune. And they're perfectly natural to our ear. But with solid state, the predominant overtones are all odd harmonics, 
which to our ear is discordant. They don't fit musically. Right. You know? So that's sort of the key, I think, to tubes. There may be a lot of other things going on there, too, but that sort of dominates the difference. Hmm. Okay, that's that's fascinating. And and Ham, at the time, didn't even need to consider, you know, the intermodular harmonics that we now encounter with digital clipping. Right. So are there any um, discrete implementations, you know, Class A implementations that have that generate even harmonics that you're fond of? Well, you know, the, the very first solid-state device, the field effect transistor, which is over 100 years old now. Really? Although nobody had a way to fabricate it reliably okay. in 1910 or 1908 or whenever they first discovered that phenomenon. They didn't really have a way to build them, but they understood the, the technology. They understood the physics of it. Oh, fascinating. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. And... One of the interesting things is the field effect transistors generally have more of that kind of tube characteristic than do the bipolar transistors. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's kind of ironic that in all the digital circuitry in the world, that's almost all FETs, which they use mainly because they consume less power. When you put a right. zillion transistors in a one chip, you know, you got to think of that. The right. heat. They, they really are a better audio device than the... Um, Bipolar transistors. Mm -hmm. Now, most integrated circuits are sort of a composite. Right. They may have FET inputs, but they generally have bipolar. And they have a lot of junctions, mm -hmm. you know, because inside this amplifier and an, an op-amp, you don't really have easily fabricated resistors and capacitors. They sort of simulate them with more transistors. Right. <laughs> yeah. And that's just another junction the audio has got to deal with. And mm -hmm. I think that's part of the reason why they don't sound as good as they could, and that's why discrete stuff sounds better, because you can minimize the number of junctions. Right. Which also gets us to possibly a third reason that, that tubes could, um, at first glance, sound better, is that you open up these huge boxes you make and trace out the circuit. Um, there's probably less going on in them, actually, than there is in one standard integrated op-amp. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, our, our mic preamp circuit is extremely simple. It's um, it's basically four triodes. You know, that's mm -hmm. that's the equivalent of four transistors. Right, <laughs> yeah. It's very simple. And, you know, the less you put audio through, the better. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about mic preamp or stages of amplification or outboard gear or whatever you're doing. The less you torture it, the better it's going to sound. Mm-hmm. So you keep the signal path as simple as possible. Yeah. And that's one thing I learned back in the days, even with the solid-state console. I frequently um, just patched the mic preamp right into the tape machine and just mm -hmm. bypassed all the rest of the mixing stage of the console because it just sounded better. Right. And that's a, that brings us back to, you know, it really depends on your ears. I think some people would say they like to patch in as much stuff as possible because that's what uh, sounds like a record to them. I'm doing scare quotes yeah. that the podcast <laughs> listeners can't see. Um, so that, that's interesting. Well, that, you know, that's getting into the philosophy of recording, which right. is a little bit different than what we're talking about. I'm happy to talk about that, too, but we're talking about equipment, I guess, today. <laughs> yeah. I think that brings us nicely to um, where, where we were going to go a bit before about d the design of the VT1. Mm -hmm. And you said in, in the manual that literally every component that was in that fo first prototype has at some point been revised or changed um, what does that design process look like for you? Yeah, can you tell us a bit about what that's like? Sure. 
Well, with a new product idea, and I'm going to use our VT4 equalizer as an example because it's a little more complicated and thus interesting. Great. <laughs> when I originally decided I wanted to build an equalizer because I just didn't really have anything that did what I wanted, exactly what I wanted, um, I started out duplicating some other designs, maybe not exactly, but the the general philosophy of other designs, sort of narrowing it down to the the circuitry that sounded best to me. You know, over the years, I've built lots of different equalizers, you know, the state variable and all the other different variations that, that are out there. And, you know, they were all interesting in one way or another, but none of them really knocked me out. The one equalizer I had that that did knock me out was a Trident. It was a parametric. It was very limited production. Mm-hmm. And when I had a studio, I was fortunate because the guy who was the U.S. sales, I guess the president of U.S. sales for Trident, his family lived in the neighborhood where my studio was. Oh. <laughs> and when he would come here to, to visit, he'd bring over whatever was new mm-hmm. and let me try it out. And he brought this equalizer over, and I just love this equalizer. Mm-hmm. And I said, I got to have two of these because to me, that was like a mixed bus equalizer if I ever heard one. Okay. And I love that equalizer. And so that was sort of my model of what I wanted. I had actually talked to Malcolm Toft, who had designed that equalizer, who became a friend some years later, and said, you really ought to put that out again. You know, I said, that's really a spectacular piece. And he was kind of reluctant. I said, well, if you're not going to do it, can I do it? And never really got an answer. So I <laughs> decided, okay, I got to do my own equalizer. Yeah. So I didn't want to do that style equalizer. I wanted to use tubes. And implementing that circuit in tubes was practically impossible. Okay. So it came down to doing a passive EQ. And so what I did was I started building some equalizers with hand-wound inductors and capacitors, you know, which is what you use in a passive EQ. And listening to it and listening to it a lot. Uh, All day long when I was working in the shop, I'd have stuff going through this equalizer and I'd occasionally go over and turn something and listen and see what it did. And I realized pretty quickly that there's certain combination of ratios between the inductance and capacitance that sounded better than others. And I thought, that's nuts. You know, why would that be? It's the same mathematical function ultimately. You know, it doesn't really change. Right. But there's something about it that does change. And I came across from the 1930s a Western Electric handbook from from Bell Labs on designing equalizers for telephone circuits. Because back in those days, network radio was the biggest thing that ever happened. You know, Mm -hmm. it was like the Internet today or television when it came out. Sure, yeah. And they had to transmit live audio all around the country somehow with some sort of decent fidelity. And they were able to get fifty to 10,000 consistently to every radio station in the country through we're really just practically ordinary copper telephone lines. Yeah, 50, 50 hertz to, to 10K hertz. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And they did it by using clever equalization to compensate for the losses in the line. And this book had page after page after page of design tables for picking the inductor and capacitor ratios that worked best. Okay. They had figured this out. I mean, Bell Labs invented everything in audio. Yeah. Everything, even stuff they couldn't do, like digital in the 1930s. They had all the math worked out. 
Really? They knew how to do it. They had the, the phone company had their first digital lines in use in the late 1950s. Nobody knows that. Wow, no. That's pretty yeah. amazing. I've never heard that. Yeah. No. They were just really on the cutting edge of this stuff, and they, they understood it all really, really well. Yeah. And so that's what I use sort of as my basis for designing the equalizer circuitry. And then it was just a matter of figuring out, well, what frequencies, you know, to my ear, what frequencies do I need? I did it all by ear because I just knew roughly where I mm -hmm. wanted it to be. So I had a starting point. And I would decide on values to try for that particular frequency and see how that sounded and then work with that, play around with those values and all that. And to this day, that's been out now for almost 15 years, that product. I've never measured the curves of it. I've never figured out oh, what, wow. what the curves are on that yeah. equalizer because it doesn't matter to me. Right. right. You know, it, it, it really is what does it sound like? Yeah. Wow, that's that's great. All right, so before we wrap up, I'd just like to talk about what's what's going on in the in the shop where we're recording this. Um, I see there's a is it serial number two of the VT twenty four on your desk here. Can you tell me what what's going on here? The VT twenty four is exactly the same as the VT one and VT two circuit. It's exactly the same components all the way through. The audio path is identical. What ha was happening was. I, I had customers that had a whole rack full of VT2s because they wanted to record everything with that, mm -hmm. just like a, like I do. Like just a wall of red right. preamps. Yeah, right, okay. which, yeah. which I love to see. Uh -huh. <laughs> but, you know, I was running into the same problem myself. I mean, how much rack space can you devote to preamps? You right. know, it just takes up so much room. And I thought, well, is it possible to put four of these in that space? You know, can I do that without compromising anything? Mm -hmm. It's possible. And then we did it, and we haven't compromised on the specs or the sound or anything. So the VT24, which we just introduced um, earlier this month in, in April, and it's um, we're starting to build them now to ship them out to the customers. Great. Yeah, it, it looks like um, a serious piece of mechanical engineering to get all four of those and the power supply in that uh, in that box. So Yeah. Well, and there's a lot more to it than that because you have to worry about crosstalk between the right. channels. And when you have that much stuff exposed to that big a power supply in the mm -hmm. same box, you know, how do you minimize interference in the power supply? Yeah. But that was one product. And, and this has always been true with me. The, the first prototype that I built, when I finished it, turned it on, it worked perfectly. And I said, this is it. <laughs> if it comes together like that, it's going to be a great product. Yeah. If I have to fight with it forever to make it work right, then I usually just say, you know, I'm going to tackle this another time huh. on the shelf. Yeah. There's shelves full of prototypes in here that are just things that I said, nope, it's just, it's just too much ordeal for it to be a good product at this point. It's, I'll revisit this. It's not time. ready to come into the world yeah. yet. I mean, I probably had five or six compressor prototypes before the VT7. Wow. You know, and they're all sitting around here. Yeah. And they just weren't what I wanted. They weren't good enough. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd love to see that trash pile. <laughs> it sounds like the way, you know, some people talk about songs or a painting mm -hmm. or something. I think there's a lot of similarities. I mean, it's it's it's... You know, I think people that approach it entirely from an engineering point of view with a page full of specifications, mm -hmm. 
they can design a circuit to do all that. And probably they have a price, too, that they have to design, too. They usually go together. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, it may work fine, and it may be a useful tool. Mm-hmm. But is it the best possible tool you could have done with that amount of parts and that amount of money? I don't know. Yeah. You know, I, I want to try and figure out if there's a way I can get, you know, if it's 1%, nobody's going to hear a 1% improvement in something. Mm-hmm. But you get 10 of those 1%s. Then it starts to make a difference. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's been a wonderful conversation. It's been great to come out to the the workshop and uh, DW Fern. I really appreciate it. Sure. My pleasure, Peterson. Nice talking to you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can find more content like this, tutorials on building your own equipment, and high-quality DIY kits that you can build yourself at DIYRecordingEquipment.com. Thanks again to D.W. Fern for having us out to his workshop and conducting this interview with me. And I want to thank our mutual friend Paul Kandikian of Firehouse Studio in Westchester, PA, for connecting us. I also want to thank John Tidy of the Audio Geek Scene and the Home Recording Show for editing this podcast. Thanks, and we'll talk to you next time.